I'd like to invite you to take your Bible this morning and join me in turning to the New Testament Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we'll be today, Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, chapter 3. From my perspective, my coach didn't like anybody. He didn't smile a lot, and his primary means of communication was criticism, so that's about all I ever got from him was a frown and telling me what it was I was doing that was wrong. And all through tryouts as a freshman, I had a goal. I wanted to make the varsity basketball team. But based on a guy that frowned at you and only told you what you did wrong, you never had any idea where you stood. You never felt really good about things. And I remember we came down to the end of the tryout times. I, I felt good about my, my chances to make the teams in general, but my goal was to make the varsity team. And, and he named the varsity team, and my name wasn't on that list. And he named the junior varsity team, my name was on that list. And I tried to act like it didn't bother me, but it did. I'm sure you all can relate to times where you had a goal. It didn't quite work out the way you had hoped it would. And you'd worked hard. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing my very best to act like it's not a big deal, no problem here. And then my coach called me over and he said, uh, Steve, this is what we want to do with you this year. We want you to play junior varsity. And then we also uh, want to give you a varsity jersey and, and uh, you'll suit out for varsity. He said, you're not going to get a lot of time, but we'll, we'll let you sit on the bench. And to be honest with you, I was glad for that. I was glad to uh, play junior varsity and sit on the bench and get the experience and cheer the team on. And then the next year rolled around. I was no longer content with just making the team. Uh, I wasn't going to be content with just making the varsity. I'd learned, I'd grown, we'd graduated some good players. And, and I came into that season with the desire of really having a, a key role on our varsity basketball team. And I wanted to see good things happen. Now, I remember we got out there and I no longer felt this sense of urgency about will I be on the team or not. For me, that was a done issue. I was going to work hard to do the best I could. And I remember one day early on in that tryout process, and, and really it was just going through the routine. I didn't feel as though I was trying out to make the team. I felt like I'd earned that spot by the prior, year, prior year's play. But my coach pulled me aside and he said, Steve, this year I want you to serve as the captain of our varsity team. And I thought, well, that sounds good to me. And uh, I, I think probably my face betrayed that I was feeling pretty excited about the opportunity to, to do that. But he reminded me, he said, uh, listen, being the captain, it's not all fun and games. That means you're my man on the court. That means when I'm trying to get something across, uh, sometimes I'll just share it to you and you'll let the team know and you've got to be supportive. And, and he went on and on to share his expectations. And, and with those expectations came in my life increased responsibility. I, I knew I had a place on the team, but I was called to serve in a special way. And in a similar sense, that is exactly what we're observing in the life of Christ. He called the apostles to Himself in faith. As they came to Him and, and learned of Him, He called them to be disciples. That term just simply means follower. And in time, the Lord said essentially this, if you'll allow me to use this analogy, you've got a place on the team. That's not in jeopardy. You're on the team because I put you on the team. But he came to them for this third call, if you would, essentially saying, I've got a special way in which I'd like you to serve. And with this special call comes some expectations. It brings some responsibility. But I'll help you. Will you serve as an apostle? It's interesting how the Lord brought this team along and how he helped them. And he called the disciples to become apostles. It was a moment that set them apart in church history as the founding servant leaders. As we look to this text today, we find the Lord carefully calling, directing, helping these men for a life of service. And the instruction that he gave, it was specific for their day and their time 
and that to which he was calling them. But friends, believe me when I tell you what we're going to study today will be principles that are timeless. And they'll help us in any area of life. If you invest nothing today, you'll get nothing out of our study. If you invest little, you'll get little. But I believe if we jump into this text with all of our hearts, we can learn some things from the Lord that will help us in every area of our lives, all right? And so if you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing today as we look at God's Word. Mark chapter 3, we finished last week in verse 6, therefore we'll begin this week in verse 7. That's kind of how that's working in our study through the Gospel of Mark. We'll pick it up in verse 7 where the Bible says, But Jesus withdrew himself with the disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did came unto him. I'm going to read on, but Jesus here is, he's trying to get away with his apostles, disciples at this time, seeking to spend time with them, and the crowds follow. And I think it's interesting at the end of verse 8, the Bible tells us that they followed to see uh, of the great things that he had done. There was always an element that, that pursued Christ not to know him more, or to serve him, or to love him, or to worship him. There was always an element that followed Jesus to see what trick he would do next. Let's go. Maybe he'll do a really neat miracle. I heard he, he fed some lunch, and, and that was great. Let's go see what that's all about. Or some that even came with needs in their lives, which is good and appropriate. But as soon as the Lord met that need, we see some abandoned the, the, the one that touched them. In fact, in John chapter 6, it was, so, it was so common for people to come to Jesus only to get what they could get from Him and then walk away from Him that Jesus actually asked His disciples at one point, are you going to leave me too? Making this point. Now, I certainly can't judge the heart of another, but I know many times when I look within my own heart, there's a lot of times where I bring an attitude to God of, all right, God, I'm here so you can help me solve my problems. Give me a job, help the financial situation, help the loved one who's sick, whatever it is. God, I need some stuff from you. To have God work in my life many times to not maintain that closeness. And that was really something that was happening in the life of Christ at this time. People came from far and wide, but, but we see that a lot of them just came, as the Bible makes clear, just because they'd heard that he was going to do some great things and, and they wanted to get in on the show of it all. Verse 9, the Bible says he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he'd healed many and so much that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. As we see here, Jesus Christ, being God the Son, has power over, over evil spirits. And we've seen that in greater detail already to this point in our study. We won't focus on that in this study today, but let it be known our God is a God that knows no limits when it comes to his powers. He can conquer any problem in that day and in our day. Verse 13, and he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. So this is his decision. He called them. And the Bible says, and they came unto him. So we see in verse 13, Jesus called them and then they came. Verse 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, 
and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And he surnamed them Bonerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite. Again, I'll read on, but I want you to take note here of Simon the Canaanite. Simon the Canaanite. Uh, This is a man also known in Scripture, called in other places in Scripture, Simon the Zealot. And I want us to think of that. This is an interesting group that the Lord called together to collaborate in the great work of global evangelization. And so Simon the Zealot is one I want you to remember there. Verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Go back, please, to verse 14. And he ordained 12. The word ordain essentially means to set apart for a special service. And so here's this group of men that had come to know the Lord. They had become followers of the Lord, and yet we find another place for them to go in terms of commitment to Christ in response to his call. There's not one of us here today that doesn't have another place to go in terms of our commitment to Christ. We are all so far from having arrived that it would be impossible for us with any integrity to go to church and hear at least a biblically based message from anywhere in the Bible. And when it concludes for us to think, yeah, I didn't need that one. That one was for everybody else. The fact is we all need that one, okay? And it's great to see as the Lord works with these, all men in this case, of course he works with everybody, but in this case as the Lord worked with these men, they just seem to continue learning and growing and getting closer to Christ and their lives counted for eternal things. And, and, and I want us to work together today to make sure that we get in this study and learn what God wants us to learn so that we, like them, can then go out and do what God would have us to do. So let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come and learn and study and grow. And God, I do pray that you would help us today to, to look carefully to this text, uh, not with any preconceived ideas of what it is we think we should find, but Lord, may we look in this text to find you and your truth and your will. Use me, Lord. I need your help. I pray you'd open the heart of each listener. We need you at this time, dear God. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As the fame of Christ increased, crowds exponentially grew, and the pressure from the crowds required a response from Jesus Christ. He couldn't ignore them or act like they weren't there. The crowds were just pressing upon the Lord. And to avoid the press, the Bible says that he withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. The Lord thought, well, we'll remove ourselves from the crowds. And and yet the Bible records that in response to that move by Christ, the crowds moved as well, and, and there they were. As we find this crowd following the Lord, we see some elements that develop in this text. And as you have your outlines nearby, the first element we'll, we'll see here is Christ's powerful influence. Now, our previous study, the one we just concluded, it revealed that the religious leaders desired to destroy Jesus Christ. That's not metaphor. That's not hyperbole. That's not a word I'm using to somehow make a point. That's the word the Bible used to refer to the way the religious crowd intended to pursue Jesus Christ. They wanted to destroy Him. 
In the matter of a few verses, we go from reading of those that absolutely want to annihilate Jesus Christ, destroy Jesus Christ, to we find great crowds coming to Jesus to somehow be blessed or helped or be ministered to. The Bible makes it clear that, that this group that came, these great multitudes, they followed Jesus from all parts of the nation. They came from as far north as Galilee, as far south as Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea. They came from as far east as beyond Jordan and west from Tyre and Sidon. These locations were a tremendous distance for the time. And I want you to consider the fact that even the reputation of Jesus had spread to these lengths in such a relatively short period of time is amazing. But beyond that, people not only were hearing of Jesus, they were traveling. Idumea, for example, is as far away as 250 miles. They're traveling this great distance to come to Jesus because they'd heard so much and, and they're coming to seek Him. Jesus was and is an undeniable force in the world. The whole world at that time, His world at that time, they were hearing of Him and, and some wanted to destroy Him and others wanted to embrace Him and some wanted to kill Him and some were hoping just to touch Him in the hopes that some of the virtue of Christ would come off on them. Some people today love Jesus and some people today love to hate Jesus, but you can't ignore Jesus. He's the dividing line of human history. And regardless of what it is that people think about Jesus, people think about Jesus. He's an undeniable force in the world. I spent some time recently listening to a panel discussion about the origins of the universe. The panel was divided between those who believed in God and those who did not. Those who professed a degree of faith in the Lord and those who denied the existence of God altogether. And as they talked, I found it was interesting that those who professed to know God, they didn't say a whole lot about God. Now, they said some things about God, and I was appreciative for the good things they did say, and they brought up some scientific evidence. It was interesting to me that those who denied the existence of God talked far more about God than those that claimed to know God. And, and just between you and me, you won't tell anybody I said this, I... I kind of thought they were really crabby. And I thought, how interesting is it that these who would have a worldview absent of God at all, were a cosmic accident, it was all just one big mistake, you're nothing more than a glorified monkey, it just was, it was all an accident, when you're dead, it's done. And, and uh, uh, those that had a worldview absent from any divine intervention were fixated on the thought of a God it was all they really wanted to talk about was this God that, that didn't exist. Yet it seemed to permeate their thoughts and their conversation. As we think of this, we find in the matter of a couple verses, again, some wanted to kill Christ, others wanted His attention. And I want you to know today, without exception, every one of us at some point will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every one of us will do that. You see, the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, Wherefore? God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. You see, wisdom, wisdom is found in responding to the love of Christ in this life. So we can confess him as Lord in this life rather than at the time of judgment when our opportunity to of our own volition except Christ has passed. Everybody. God deniers and those who've accepted Christ. Everybody in the end will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. But what life is, is just a brief period of time. 
among other things, a brief period of time to come to know God. To understand there's a part of us that's going to live forever somewhere. And without a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, God the Son, we have no hope of an eternity. Christ was seeking to retreat from the press of the crowds, yet when they followed him, they were not met with his disapproval. He did not shoo them away. He, he gave his compassion. His love makes all the difference. We see not only Christ's powerful influence, but we see here too Christ's personal invitation. This call from Jesus was unique. It was a call to serve others for Jesus' sake. In other words, when Jesus now is calling the disciples to become apostles, he's saying basically, men, what I'm asking of you is to say as I have said to my Father, not my will, but thy will be done. I'm, I'm asking you to live for others according to my will. I'm telling you that in the course of doing so, I'll enable you, I'll encourage you, I will equip you, but I'm asking you to serve others for me. And this was a call to leadership. It was a call to the servant-styled leadership that we find in Jesus Christ. It was a call not to be taken lightly. And it was a call that Jesus Christ did not take lightly. Now, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He's God the Son. We emphasize that often. We know this. But did you know before Jesus Christ called these men to be His closest followers, to be the ones through whom His legacy would be established and lived out when He returned to, to heaven? Did you know that Jesus Christ thought so much of this decision that he spent all night talking to the Father about it? All night. In Luke's uh, Gospel, the sixth chapter, in verse 12, it says, It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. You see, this was a significant moment in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Christ. These men, the 12 of them, would play a key role in carrying on his work. And again, Jesus knew that in a, a very short period of time, he'd be crucified on a cross. He'd be buried in a tomb. He'd raise again from the dead. And then he'd ascend to the right hand of God the Father. And he knew that it would be through the lives of these men that he was calling to serve in a special way that the work would move on. He called 12 men. And 12 is a very interesting number if you think of the Jewish culture. There are many references I could give you, but for example, the nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes, 12 tribes that came together. And we see that Jesus here takes that number to establish a new nation of sorts. And as I worked through that in my mind, I thought, is it taking it too far to say that's what Jesus did? I don't believe it is. It's, it's consistent with the narrative of the Gospels. In, in Matthew 21 and verse 43, the Bible says, therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And so Jesus here is inviting these men to serve with him. And he's inviting these men to serve for him. We know that the office of an apostle ended with the apostles. Every now and then I'll hear someone uh, introduced, maybe in the media or something, they'll say, this is apostle so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, I always think to myself, um, that that can't be the case. Because Jesus personally called the apostles to a specific office, a specific task. When the apostles died, the work of the apostles died. This was a special calling given at a point in time. We don't believe as a church in, in what some have called apostolic succession, where they hand off their calling and their mantle and their authority and their power to the next one coming behind. These were men uniquely called by Jesus Christ for a specific work to be used. And, and the Bible says that, that these men were called by Jesus Christ for a special work. And I just want to share with you that you too, Although not being called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle as they were. 
you too, and, and, and I am as well, we have a God who wants us to serve Him in special ways also. No longer is the need for apostles present as it would have been at that time, as the transition from Christ uh, returning to heaven and the church being established. They had a special calling. But there's much that God is wanting us to do. And God is still inviting people to come to Him. He's got a great plan and a place for you in it. And I love the way verse 13 ends. It says, and they came unto Him. That was a great move on their part. And it's a great move on your part. When we draw close to God. Some of the greatest memories in my life come from time spent with my granddad. We just had the best time together. We camped out for weeks at a time. We fished all over the Rocky Mountains and, and uh, we'd drive in his pickup and everywhere he went was in third gear. It was, I mean, that engine was either racing because it needed to get to fourth or it was just shaking because it wanted to get back to second. But uh, we'd drive around and I'd be quiet and he'd talk and, and uh, uh, we'd go places and he'd fish and he'd want me to stand by him to show me how to do it. And even when I knew how to do it, I'd still stand there. I, I don't think he was teaching me anymore. He just didn't want to hand the pole off to me, you know, and I'd stand there and he'd fish and, and we had a great time. We went to Alaska fishing one time and I remember pulling in a 54 inch uh, Alaskan king salmon and honestly my granddad was happier about that I think than I was and I was happy that he was happy about it and uh, so many great memories with my granddad about three years ago this time of year um, I went to see my granddad and it was it was my last trip to see him and I I, I was almost certain that it would be uh, as I went and I remember we went, and Granddad wasn't doing great. His health was failing. His mind was still there. And we talked and, and had a good time. And he's, he was never the kind of guy to say, I love you, or anything like that. And I didn't expect it. Probably would have even been a little bit weird, you know, uh, having never heard it. But, but we had a great time together. And, and, you know, sometimes God is especially good to allow us those opportunities. We don't always get those opportunities with loved ones. And I did. And I, I, I didn't take it for granted. I appreciated it. And, and we talked. And... And I remember granddad was tired and, and my grandmother wanted to talk to me and she said, "Hun, I want you to know your granddad loves you. And, and I always felt he did. I really didn't need someone to fill me in on that. But I knew what, you know, when you are at those moments, everyone wants to share what they think people need to hear and what they want you to know. And, and my grandmother wanted me to know, hey, your granddad's not the I love you kind so much, but he loves you. And, and, and I remember she really was just adamant. Your granddad loves you. And, and I felt he did and I appreciated, appreciated her saying that. And she said, no, I mean, he had a special place in his heart for you. And I got to thinking on that. My granddad had a whole bunch of grandkids. I never counted them all up, but there's a lot of them, you know. And um, she, I think she was saying he liked me a lot. Maybe not favorite, but kind of. I kind of got that feeling. I don't, I don't know exactly, but she said he had a special place in his heart for you. And I got to thinking, why, why would one guy get a special place in someone's heart? It's not because I'm any smarter than, than the other grandkids. I've, we've got doctors and lawyers and a lot of smart people. I mean, good night. Had a cousin go to uh, Yale on, on an academic scholarship. Got a lot of people much brighter than me and able to do a lot of things that I, I can't do. And I just kind of thought on that. I wonder why. And I came to a conclusion. It's because I went to visit him. I came to him. I'd go and I'd spend time with him and we would go fishing and we would talk and, and, and I would listen and we would do things together and, and, and it was just because I came to him. We're only left to wonder what the lives of the disciples would have been like if they'd have chosen to stay behind 
But they didn't. Jesus invited them and the Bible responds immediately and they came unto him. They just responded, that's all. The Lord said, I'd like to uh, spend some time with you. I have a special work in mind for you. And they responded by saying, well, sure. And, and there they were. They followed. And the rest is history. And I want you to know that it never fails. When we follow Jesus Christ, we'll discover that his way is always the best way. And these men weren't clamoring for a position at this time. They weren't trying to do something to stand out from the crowd. They just knew that Jesus had come to mean so much to them. And they wanted to follow Jesus with their lives. And, and Jesus said, I've got something special that I want you to do. And they came to him. They saw the powerful influence and the personal invitation. But as the text continues, we see also here Christ's practical instruction. There is a quality that must exist in the life of anyone who hopes to serve God. Of anybody. Not just these we're studying now, but our lives as well. It's the quality that Christ first mentions after this group is ordained or set apart for their work. And the text says it this way. He ordained twelve that they should be with Him. You see, before Jesus could send them out, before they could do that special thing for which they were being called, they needed first to spend time with Jesus. As maybe we would find in other places in Scripture, we would say, spend time at His feet, humbly before Him, learning of Him. I've had quite a few people over the years tell me that when I, I preach or teach, that I sound like my brother. Now, many of you know my brother, my older brother, Paul. Uh, he's 10 years older than me, and he's also a pastor, and, and he preaches, and he teaches, and, and many of you have heard him. He's preached here several times. And, and uh, people will say when they hear me, you sound like your older brother. And uh, I, I've never tried to sound like him. I've never approached a text and thought, you know, how could I sound a lot like my brother? But when I went to Bible college, I got all the credits in I needed. But somewhere along the way, I missed that class that teaches you how to prepare and deliver a sermon. Some of you have noticed that. You're nodding. Yeah, I knew you missed something there, you know. And uh, I didn't get in on that one. And so uh, when I got done and realized God was uh, kind of working in my heart and, and, and I knew that a part of what it is I do here is to stand up and teach. And, and it's, it's always better if I have something to say. And, I, and I've, I've thought about that a little bit. And so I, I found that I began to get a lot of preaching tapes. Do any of you remember tapes back in the day? Yeah, they were stone objects, okay, you know, and the tapes, that's what they were back in the day. And uh, uh, CDs are even old now. If you have CDs, you're just out of it. Now it's files. We just, we're just with files, you know. So anyhow, I got the tapes and I'm listening to preaching. And many of the messages I'd listened to were messages preached by my brother for a variety of reasons. I knew him very well. His life and the message I believed matched up. He, he always had something to say. He, he studied, and, and I enjoyed listening to him preach. And so in the course of listening to his messages on tape, and some of them over and over and over, I, I kind of would notice how he would establish his pattern in breaking down a text. And if you've heard me preach very many times, I read a few verses. We find a section in the text that I believe highlights the central theme, and we break it down from there. And I didn't learn that in a book. I didn't learn that from a professor. Uh, I just kind of picked that up in time. A big part of it was from listening to others. And so I can honestly tell you, I haven't tried to sound like, like my brother, who's also a pastor, but apparently I picked up some of his idiosyncrasies by listening to his sermons. And, and as I was with him in that sense, I've come to approach a text and teach a text in a similar way in which he does. And in a similar sense, when we spend time with Jesus, 
we'll find that we will not only become involved in his work, but we'll begin to do his work his way as he would do it. You see, we'll, we'll begin to do as he did and as he says. And we won't have to ask so much, what would Jesus do? I think that's a noble question, but, but it becomes instinctive. It becomes innate. As you spend enough time with someone, you, you don't try to live out their idiosyncrasies. You don't try to do it just as they would do it. It, it becomes a part of who you are. You spend time with Jesus, you're going to all of a sudden find you're, you're thinking about the things that He would think about. Your priorities look as they should based on what His priorities are for your life. And, and you begin to live for those things that He would have you to live in first peter 2 21 the bible says for even hereunto were ye called because christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps you see jesus lived an exemplary life so that among other things we could observe his behavior and follow in those steps live the life that he would call us to live and in so doing jesus then would be seen in our actions and in our words Years ago, Lisa and I served in a, a ministry in our home church. At that time, it was an inner city church. And, and uh, we had a Sunday school bus ministry. We'd go out into the community. And a lot of people that would want to come to church had no way to get there. And, and a lot of times, it would be children whose parents were working on Sunday. And we'd get to know the families. And, and we'd bring the children to, to Sunday school. And, and I remember one occasion, we had a young girl that had come in. And we'd met the family and tried to be kind to them. And and we brought her in, and Lisa and I would walk the children to their different classes, and then we'd pick them up afterwards and take them back to the bus. And, and, and I remember we had a girl ask me a question. It was an interesting question. She asked me if I was Jesus. Now, before we move on, I'm aware I'm not Jesus, as are you, okay? Uh, I have not been mistaken for Jesus more than that one time, okay? But apparently somewhere along the way, she'd heard about Jesus for the first time in Sunday school that day, and apparently I had tried to do some of the things that she had heard that Jesus was interested in doing, perhaps serving or loving or caring or whatever. And she looked at me and she very mistakenly wondered if I was Jesus Christ. Now, listen, friends, I know there were countless times when I would have been mistaken for a lot of other people other than Jesus. I understand that. I know that. But in that instance, Jesus was living through my life. And someone looked at my life, and as naive as it may have been, I think you get the point. They recognized some things there that kind of matched up with another guy they'd heard about. And Is that you? Could that be who you are? Like the story of the little boy who asked his mom, Mom, does Jesus live inside of you? He's trying to figure it all out. And she said, well, yeah. He lives in your heart? Well, yeah, son. A little while went on, and he goes, Mom, is, is Jesus bigger than you, though? And she said, well, I'd imagine. He's probably bigger than me, you know. And he said, well, if he's inside of you, shouldn't he be showing through in the edges, you know? <laughs> and, and I think there's something to be said for a person of faith who spent so much time with Jesus and is so full of Jesus, so to speak, that he shows through. And the difference is made when we spend time with the Lord through daily prayer and Bible reading and, and by learning, we, we, we're going to find that He'll show through in our lives. And, and friends, we will never make the impact in our lives that we could make if we're not faithful and diligent to make sure we're spending time with Him. And that leads us to our final thought today. We see Christ's profitable involvement. Now, I'm not going to read verses 15 through 19 again. We've read them. It's essentially a list of the disciples. It gives the names of the disciples. And some of the disciples uh, that became apostles are well known to us. Others are, 
a little well known to us, a little less well known to us. Uh, we think of all of them in time laying their lives down in one way or another by way of a martyr's death, with the exception of Judas. Of course, he died as well. But we know that uh, uh, these disciples went on to literally give their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I want to say personally, one of the greatest testimonies to the veracity of Jesus Christ is that those men who knew him the best, who spent the most time with him, who listened to him, who saw him when the lights were off, so to speak, when when, when, uh, not everyone else was watching, those are the men that gave their lives for the Lord. People don't die for other people or for other things or philosophies that they don't believe to be authentic. These men died for Jesus as Jesus had died for them, not to earn salvation, but died in their service to him. And as I thought of this group, it's not exactly the group I believe that most of us would have chosen. It's an eclectic group. It's a diverse group. I came across a fictitious letter from the Jordan Management Consultants, and uh, I want you to listen to their assessment of this group. It read, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've selected for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we have run the test results through our computer. It's our staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in in background, in education, and vocational aptitude for the type of work you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to an offensive temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. Brothers James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Frankly, they're mama's boys. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude. That would undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by our Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. You'll remember Matthew was the one who was the tax collector, and they wouldn't have liked that at all. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, have definite leanings towards the radical and register high on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, showed great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He has a keen business mind. He's highly motivated as well as ambitious and reasonable. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. I think as we look at these that Jesus called to such a special service, we probably wouldn't have called many of them. And maybe the ones that we would have thought were the greatest would have turned out to be the worst. In the New Testament, you're going to find, other than this text, three other occasions where the names of the apostles are listed. Matthew 10, Luke 6, Acts 1. And Luke tells us that it was in this occasion that their special name was given of apostle. A disciple is one who learns by doing it, perhaps would be our modern day equivalent of an apprentice, but an apostle is different. An apostle is one who is sent on official business by way of a commission. Jesus had many disciples, perhaps you are one, but Jesus only had 12 apostles. They were his special ambassadors to the world. Again, we know much about some and little about others. But what we do know about them all is all of them, their lives were radically changed through Christ's profitable involvement. Think of that. Simon was changed. It started with his name. His name was changed to Peter. Rock is the idea. Levi's name was changed to Matthew, meaning the gift of God. James and John were given the nicknames the sons of thunder. And we we commonly think of John as the apostle of love, but he was the furthest thing from the apostle of love as it all begins. That was something he was transformed into. 
And it's encouraging to see what Jesus was able to do with such a diversified group of unlikely candidates for Christian service. And it leads me to believe that there must be some hope for me and for you. If Jesus could take such an eclectic and diverse group and through them literally turn the world upside down, and that's what the enemies of of Jesus Christ had to say about their service. I just happen to believe that if we'll respond to Him and come to Him, that, that through time with Him, He can send us out to do that thing that He made us to do. He can work in us and through us. Again, it was a diverse group. I want to give you an example of that. As we read the names, I, I pointed out Simon the Canaanite, also known as Simon the Zealot. I just want you to think of this. I, I shared with you last week, there were really four main groups that, that had most of the prominence in Jewish culture. There were the Pharisees. We've learned quite a bit about them. The Sadducees. There was another group, the Herodians we have studied. They were uh, strong supporters of, of uh, Herod Antipas. And then there was a group called the Zealots. And I want to be careful with the wording I use, but the Zealots were extreme Jewish nationalists to the point that if you threatened their autonomy as a nation, you were their enemy. And it appears from what I can discern in history, they would have gone to great lengths to prevent people with whom they did not agree. Maybe you're familiar with the, uh, the historical occasion that ended on a place called Masada, where these Jews literally gave their lives. That group was a group that was associated with the zealots. These were people that were nationalists, and these were people that had, had no, no uh, uh, mercy in their minds for those that were tearing away at their nation, but especially for other Jews who sold out to the Romans, who were the oppressors. They really had no time for those people. And so we have Simon the Zealot. But we also have Matthew, the publican and tax collector, who bought into a franchise from the Romans to collect taxes, and he literally made his money by ripping off other Jews. In any other setting, I think if those two guys would have been together, it would have been on. I'm thinking Simon would have been really not happy with Matthew, and if he would have had the chance to let that unhappiness be known, he would have done so in probably the most violent way he could think of at the moment. That's the impression I get from reading. But there's no doubt these men wouldn't have been on the same team. But when Jesus was in the middle, this eclectic and diverse group comes together, and there's unity. Not perfection, not unanimity but unity around Jesus Christ. People ask me sometimes when I invite them to church, what kind of people come to your church? I was like, I don't, what kind of question is that? You know, the human kind, I don't know. What are you getting at here? <laughs> what kind of church do you have? I, I think to a degree, everyone wants to go to a church and see someone else that's like them, whatever that means to them. But I think they mean like, who's your target? Who are you going after? And it's like, Everybody. Well, no, 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 you don't understand. Is it a wealthy church, poor church? What ethnicities are represented? It's like, I never quite know how to answer that. I think we're a relatively diverse group. Kind of like the community in which we live. And I think our demographics would mirror those of our community very well. And I think that's probably the way it should be. And I think that's the way heaven will be. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred. And, and it's going to be a pretty diverse, eclectic place. But, but you see, our joy in coming together isn't based necessarily in the fact that all of us have a family history or background or whatever in common. It's that we, we come here because we have Jesus in common, a desire to know him or learn more of him. And that's a great thought. So Christ is calling all of us to himself. 
He wants us, as the text says, to be with him and to go out and share him with our world. And when we think of these disciples, we have to come to the conclusion that he's not so interested in our past inadequacies or uh, our, 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 our troubles along the way. What he wants is our willingness to follow him and learn. Certainly, the apostles are a team worthy of our respect, but they're a great testimony to the reality that Jesus can use anybody who comes to him and spends time with him and follows him when he says, oh, I've got something I want you to do. He can use anybody like that. Anyone who will follow the Lord can be used by the Lord. And so that leads us to one question. We're done. Are you following him? Really? Really? You say, well, pastor, I'm at church. Good night. Yeah, I know. I'm a pastor of a church. And there are times when I search my heart, I come to the conclusion, you know what, Lord? I'm not near as close to you as I need to be. I need to follow you better. I haven't arrived. Lord, when you prompt me by your spirit to come closer to you, I can never say, oh, I'm close enough. That calls probably for someone else. No, it's very personal. Following Jesus isn't just warming a seat for an hour and ten minutes on a Sunday morning. That's a good thing to do. I think it's good to warm it up on Sunday night. I think it's a good thing to warm another one up in small group. I, I think it's good to, to do many of these things we talk about. But, but listen, I'm not talking about the, the form or the formality of it all. I'm talking about in our hearts. Are we truly Christ followers who respond to his call and spend time with him and then do those things he'd have us to do? Lord, thanks for an opportunity to study these verses and, and to learn more of of these men that you called and to see how you worked in their lives. And Lord, I pray that we like them, not like them in function, that was unique, but Lord, I pray that we like them would respond and would draw close to you. We'd come when you call and we'd go when you send and that we would be your spokespeople, your ambassadors. Lord, we need that. It pleases you, it glorifies you, it puts us in the best position in life and and yet we know we live in a world that needs all the good news they can get, and it's your desire that we'd share that. Help us, we pray this morning. Heads are bowed and, and eyes are closed, and we'll be on our way in a few moments. Perhaps you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, as, 